You're listening to the midweek edition of the 1208 Podcast. Hey, welcome back to the Midweek Podcast. Sorry we had no episode last week. Last week I was very busy finishing up a new book called Fantasy IRL, which means in real life. That's a internet lingo there. Uh, subtitle, Glimpses of a Hidden World. Now you can find that on Amazon in uh, both paperback and Kindle editions. If you'd like to learn more about the supernatural world as the Bible explains it. Now, uh, if you've been with us at 1208 for a while, they're actually, uh, you'll see the connection. We've been talking recently about uh, launching a new kind of ministry called Nerd Church, uh, which we recently, the, the nerds that are kind of heading this up, have uh, renamed it 1208 bit. 8 bit, that's like, you know, old school video games, we're in 8 bit. Anyways, it's funny. Okay, so um, when we started working on that project, I was like, hmm, you know what? Uh, I already have a book that that would appeal to nerds because it has kind of a sci-fi feel to it. It's about God and the idea of would he make aliens? Does the Bible say anything in regards? Or what? what is it that we already know about God that would tell us one way or another if he would still be creating on other planets or things like that. So I have one book that nerds might appeal to, right, about sci-fi themes like aliens. Um, and uh, it's not as crazy as it sounds. Don't worry. A lot of the book is actually just about understanding science and how it and Christianity blend together. Um, but I was like, you know what? I've got my book, The Rush and the Rest. What if I redid this? with a uh, more of a fantasy-like feel. Because The Russian and the Rest gets into the supernatural world in 500 pages talking about, um, you know, these giant clans mentioned all throughout the Old Testament, about spiritual beings, both the good guys, the angels, the bad guys, the demons, the sons of God, the powers, the principalities, uh, the divine council, and all this stuff. So anyways, all that's already in The Russian and the Rest. I was like, all right. What if we were to take that out of 500 pages, condense it down to like 120, and then just uh, show people how fantasy, um, the themes that we often think of as fantasy, are actually found in the Bible as uh, um, real-life situations throughout uh, the Bible and uh, some of it throughout today, you know, like uh, still looking at spiritual gifts. These are supernatural giftings on people, but, um, at the same time, they are, uh, you know, um, they, they can kind of sound fantasy-esque to today's generation. So that was kind of the point and the intent behind that book. It, it, it was different for me to write, um, because I usually have footnotes everywhere. I have, uh, Bible verses referenced everywhere, but I kept bringing myself back to say, Jamin, you're trying to write for people who, A, either know nothing about this and aren't so interested in every last reference and proof, but just want to hear the basic gist of it. And you're also writing for people who may not be Christians at all, 
who aren't going to be interested in that kind of stuff. So uh, it was different for me to try to write from that perspective, to pull out all of the footnotes and, and just be as straight and to the point as possible. But that was a fun book to to write. And uh, again, that's up on Amazon. And I, I wanted to finish it as quick as I could because I wanted to be able to um, have it available for our big nerd church launch in a few in a few uh, weeks. Actually, we're going to be at uh, Mega XP, which is um, it, it's Jackson's Comic Con, more or less. There will be plenty of nerds from all over the place coming to um, check out all kinds of things, and we'll have a booth there. Just telling people about game nights coming up at church, which will all eventually lead up to this launch of 1208-Bit of Nerd Church. So uh, I got the book done for that so that people might be able, if they were genuinely interested in learning more that day, I'd be able to say, look, here's uh, some more to check out. Check out this book, take it with you, and and see what you can uh, um, deduce from this. So that would be one of the several different nerdy books that I've written through throughout the last few years that uh, they'll be able to check out. Anyways, uh, that was uh, a lot of introduction for nothing that has to do with where we're going in Genesis, but I thought might be uh, uh, just a, a good way to kind of keep you up to date with uh, the going-ons of how we're looking to impact the Jackson community with the kingdom of heaven and show people Jesus and uh, now let's go ahead and dive into our Bible study here. Uh, we've been going through Genesis, and we left off in Genesis 15. So if you remember in our last passage, the word of the Lord came to Abraham, um, which he comes to Abraham in a vision, and then it almost seems like he's not even just like an ethereal kind of like head vision, but almost maybe physically there, because at one point he brings Abraham outside. So we don't know if that's like still in his head or what kind of vision at this point, if it's like it's a vision of him right in front of him, we don't know. But again, the word of the Lord is often a physical manifestation of God throughout the Bible. Maybe I shouldn't say often, sometimes a physical manifestation of God throughout the Bible. When he shows up as the angel of the Lord, that often is always physical. But uh, the word of the Lord just talked to Abraham. He gave him a promise. He said, you're going you're gonna, to um, be like the stars. You're going to have so many descendants. Even though right now you don't have a child, one day you will have a child who will have a child who will have a child until you have descendants like crazy. Look at the heavens. Look at the stars. Number the stars if you're able to number them. And if, if you can number those, then know like... That's the extent to which you'll have children. So, so many children. We talked about uh, some of the other ways to pay attention to that theme, that you'll have as many children as the stars. Uh, that was our last episode, but that catches us back up to speed to where we are when we enter verse 7. So we're still in this vision, and then Abraham says this. And he said to him, oh, sorry, this is God speaking, not Abraham, sorry. And he said to him, I am the Lord who brought you out from Ur of the Chaldeans to give you this land to possess. But he said, O Lord God, how am I to know that I shall possess it? He said to him, Bring me a heifer three years old, a female goat three years old, a lamb, sorry, a ram three years old, a turtle dove, and a young pigeon. 
And he brought him all these, cut them in half, and laid each half over against the other. But he did not cut the birds in half. And when the birds of prey came down on the carcasses, Abram drove them away. As the sun was going down, a deep sleep fell on Abram. And behold, dreadful and great darkness fell upon him. Then the Lord said to Abram, Know for certain that your offspring will be sojourners in a land that is theirs, that is not theirs, and will be servants there, and they will be afflicted for four hundred years. But I will bring judgment on the nation that they serve, and afterward they shall come out with great possessions. As for you, you shall go to your fathers in peace. You shall be buried in a good old age. And they shall come back here in the fourth generation, for the iniquity of the Amorites is not yet complete. When the sun had gone down and it was dark, behold, a smoking firepot and a flaming torch passed between these pieces. On that day the Lord made a covenant with Abram, saying, To your offspring I give this land, from the river of Egypt to the great river, the river Euphrates, the land of the Kenites, the Kenizzites, the Kadamites, the Hittites, the Perizzites, the Rephaim, the Amorites, the Canaanites, the Girgashites, and the Jebusites. All right, so let's uh, let's stop there for now, uh, and let's go right to where we just wrap this up. Especially because this is fresh in my mind because I was just writing, <laughs> writing on uh, uh, this topic in in that book that I just wrote, Fantasy IRL. So in Fantasy IRL, which again is a condensed version of the Rush and the Rest, in Fantasy IRL I talk about the giant clans of the Bible, whom we've been referencing uh, since we took note of them in Genesis six here on the podcast. Uh, by the time that we get to uh, the conquest of the promised land, where Israel is going to war to take the promised land, one of the interesting things to note here is that God just mentioned all these different clans of people in the promised land, and several of these clans are giants. Uh, so within what we just read here in Genesis 15, the Rephaim specifically is a giant clan. All of those are giants. If you are a Rephaim, then you're related to um, the Anakim, the Nephilim, the Nephilim. These are all, uh, when you read these in your Bible, you need to think giants. But here's the thing. Um, some of these other clans that are mentioned here in Genesis 15 as being in the promised land some of them, uh, I believe specifically the Hittites, the Amorites, the Canaanites, and the Jebusites. These are human people groups, but the Bible also gives us the space to believe that giants have cohabitated amongst them. So human people groups with giants living amongst them. So here you have God in Genesis 15 saying, I am going to give you the land where specifically you can think of the Rephaim as giants who are living there. But then later you learn like, but also the giants who have moved into all these other clans. I'm giving you that land. And when you pay attention to the full um, perspective of the conquest in the Bible, where there's all this holy war, which is hard for us to deal with, right? Because we're like, Jesus taught us that God loves us and will die for us. And yet in the Old Testament, it seems like God's out kind of killing everyone or having his people kill everyone in genocide. What do we do with this? If you pay close attention, 
Um, at least uh, scholar Michael Heiser would say, like, if you pay really close attention, the purpose of holy war is to get rid of the giant clans. What the flood missed, uh, these these clans that somehow escaped from uh, uh, death in the flood in Genesis 6, um, these giant clans are being wiped out during the holy war. Uh, and if you ever come across a spot in in the conquest where giants aren't thought to be present, there's other ways to just like drive them out of their land and take their land another way without um, going to war. That's not to say that uh, humans um, wouldn't have uh, gotten killed in wars like that, you know, um, but the purpose perhaps behind these wars was to do what the flood missed with the giants, to get rid of the giants and to, um, yeah, remove remove them from from the world like the flood was supposed to do. So anyways, uh, I have a whole chapter on that in that book that I just finished. That's a little more... Actually, I just posted that entire chapter at jaminbradley.com. Just read the giant clans of the Bible. If you want to see like all of the passages of what the Bible says about, about the giant clans. All right, so God's promising Abraham that land where all the giants are, I'm going to give it to you. That land where other people are is going to be given to you, um, and that's going to happen later down the road in the Bible throughout uh, the book of Joshua. But for right now, uh, we also need to hone in on this idea of covenant. Now, promises are important. We all know that, right? Um, at least we, we should all know that. I remember growing up in my family, my mom teaching me, Jamin, if you're going to make a promise, you always keep the promise. Don't make promises you're not going to make. These are important to, to your word. You, you got to hold up what you say. And so that, that's always stuck with me. And therefore I, I try to pay attention to not just making a promise for any little thing. Um, though at the same time, by the time we get to Jesus, it's important to pay attention that that Jesus is like, look, stop making promises. Just be people who do what you say. He says, let your yes be yes, your no be no. In other words, don't swear upon a stack of Bibles uh, on your mother's grave, on your pretty floral little bonnet, what, whatever whatever it is that you you know got to stack up your words to make your promise look more incredible. Stop doing that. Jesus is like, as a Christian, as my people, as my follower, just if you say yes, do it. And if you say no, then you know you, you don't hold yourself to this. But don't get caught up in making promises that you can't keep. But here's the here's the thing in the Old Testament, like you really see the importance of promises in the Old Testament, especially when it comes to things like covenants. And they are so important that when we read them today, we don't even understand what's going on here. I mean, if you were paying attention to what I read in Genesis 15, basically Abraham just <laughs> chopped a bunch of animals in half and made a a covenant with God through this. And <laughs> that's kind of the weird story that you're left with. And so you're like, okay, so this was a sacrifice or, or what exactly was this? And then on top of that, he has this uh, perhaps a, a, another vision of sorts uh, in which a smoking fire pot and a flaming torch pass between these halved animal pieces 
So what on earth is going on here? And the answer is found in the ancient Near East. If you were just to kind of do research into to, uh, the background of the Bible, how people lived at the time, you'd see covenantal promises were made in this way. It's a, a custom of sorts. Here, uh, let me read from John H. Walton's uh, the IVP Bible background commentary on the Old Testament where he and his uh, co-authors point out that second millennium Hittite texts use a similar procedure for purification, while some first millennium Aramaic treaties use such a ritual for placing a curse on any violation of the treaty. Texts from Mary and Alakah feature the killing of animals as part of the ceremony of making a treaty. Walking through this sacrificial pathway could be seen as a symbolic action enacting both the covenant's promise of land and a curse on the one who violates the promise. So there you go. It sounds weird, but the cutting animals in half and then walking between them, this was a way in which you made a promise. Now, we just saw that ancient people in the Near East, they, they had mm, similar ceremonies for different kinds of things in which animals would be, be cut like this. And often throughout the Bible, um, when a covenant is made, it's, uh, the language is specifically related to a, a covenant was cut. Cut is a common word that comes alongside covenants throughout the Bible. Therefore, you see, like, if you're cutting a covenant, then cutting these animals in half, like the very word cut for cut a covenant, is relating to this, this kind of ceremony. But why? Why are, why are they cutting animals in half? What is the, the point behind this? Well, Jeremiah 34, 18 actually kind of shows us some of the purpose here. Uh, when Jeremiah is calling out uh, some people with a prophetic word, he says, The men who transgressed my covenant and did not keep the terms of the covenant that they made before me, I will cut them like the calf that they cut in two and pass between its parts. So right here, you almost see this possibility um, in Jeremiah that part of the reason in which you cut a covenant is to say, look, uh, <laughs> just as I have killed these animals have as I have cut them in half and made a promise to you if I should be found guilty of not holding up my word this promise this covenant this sacred covenant I've made if I don't keep up this covenant then may it be done to me as what has been done to these animals that I too would be killed uh, in the same way that these have been killed because that's that's how Jeremiah interprets it in in uh in this passage again i will make god says i will make them like the calf that they cut in two and pass between its part so uh, at one point these these men had made a covenant promise with god and uh they killed a, a cow and they walked between the cow uh as part of saying like you know we're walking through this animal's life we're walking between these two halves and then they didn't keep their promise to God, and God's like, so uh, you too will, will be cut just as you cut this animal. So we see the uh, good possibility of the purpose behind cutting a covenant to be found right there in uh, uh, Jeremiah, kind of giving us uh, some of the background as to why you would cut a covenant. But here's what's interesting. When you cut a covenant, you know, uh, the parties involved in walking between these animals that have been cut— 
the parties involved are going to be the parties who have made that promise uh, to each other because they're the ones who are going to be guilty of the death of these animals. They're the ones who deserve to die for not holding up their word. Uh, so they're the ones who are going to pass through these, these animals. What's interesting in this passage is God has just promised Abraham a covenant. He's cut a covenant with Abraham. But did you notice Abraham never walked between these animals? He cut them in half. Uh, he, he cut the covenant. But Abraham is not involved in making the covenant. What's interesting, and it sounds weird, but we saw a smoking fire pot and a flaming torch pass between these pieces. Abraham's not present. Instead, the smoking fire pot and the flaming torch, which in the Bible would just be kind of symbolic of, of, uh, of God, these are the objects that go through uh, the covenant that's been cut. In other words, God does not promise Abraham and Abraham promises God back. Instead, God is so incredibly faithful to his promise, to his word, that God is basically saying in this passage, look, I am promising myself. The perfect God, the faithful God is promising himself that he will make this happen. He cuts a covenant with himself. So if God does not hold up his promise, so it would be done to God uh, as had been done to these animals. So he would be guilty. But we know God is perfect, can't be guilty. And so when God promises himself right here, he doesn't even take Abraham into account. You know, it's not like, look, Abraham, I'm going to promise you if you promise me back. In this, in this specific covenant, that doesn't happen. And God knows, like, Abraham, he would fail. He, he's going to fail, actually. We see it happen where Abraham does not uh, do a great job at holding up his side of the bargain. But the covenant's been cut, and therefore God is faithful to his side of what he promised himself. I will make you a great nation. I will give you this land. God promises himself to do that, and so he does it. And so there you go. For, for today, we're just going to focus in on that. It is the cutting of the covenant where God promises himself that he will do all this for, for Abraham. So we're going to continue to see how Abraham's story plays out, which you probably know quite well. It, it doesn't play out uh, perfectly. Abraham is flawed. We're actually, uh, next time as we get into it, you're going to see a continuation here of the, well, of the story of Adam and Eve. You're going to find some of the language that's going on between Adam and Eve in the original fall now being played out once again, but this time through Abraham and Sarah. So we'll get into that as Hagar is introduced into the scene next time, and we'll begin to see uh, some of Abraham's uh, uh, flaws show through when we get to that. So uh, for now, we will... Uh, let you go and we will catch you next time